Welcome to Space Chai, where we spill the tea on all things space, covering topics from space law and policy to science and technology, and interviewing industry experts in the field. We We hope hope you enjoy enjoy this podcast. podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Space Chai. For those of you who listened to our previous episode, we went into the basics of space policy, including what space policy is, what it entails, discussed the Endeavor Shuttle here at California Science Center, the history of space policy, and the space race, as well as where space policy is headed. For all of you who are joining us today for the first time, welcome. I'm your host, DC. And I'm your co-host, Bailey Wilson. All right. We got some piping tea today. I think the first thing that we wanted to talk about was what is happening to investments in space. I think we discussed a little bit about this in our last episode of looking at where space policy is headed. Um, But what is currently happening to space investment? Yeah, so since 2021, um, investments in space have been dramatically decreasing. And I think part of that is due um, to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but we have some number for y'all, numbers for y'all that in rough, or roughly uh, $50 billion in investments went to space in 2021, but that number is or was cut in half for 2022 with roughly $20 billion. And in 2023, it dropped again to roughly $15 billion being used to invest in space. So there's definitely clear trends of like investments decreasing in the industry. That's insane. So like our funding dropped that dramatically just from 2020 all the way to this year. Yeah, it's been it's been dropping, but it's expected to be higher this year. For 2024, NASA has suggested that they need 20, or $27.2 billion in funding. Uh, part of that will go to the Artemis moon mission, which is expected to launch this year. It's slated around $8.1 billion. Yes. If I'm understanding this correctly, and uh, you know, just correct me if I'm wrong, I may not know. Is the Artemis mission the one that got delayed to September of next year? Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's definitely been there's been a lot of delays recently. We're not 100% sure about when the launching is expected to be because we've heard different numbers throughout the years. We've heard different dates and we've been disappointed a lot of times recently. So yeah, it just whatever NASA's feeling like, whatever, whatever ends up happening, but it's expected to happen in the next year, probably. Yeah, I know that the project has been like scrutinized for delays and a lot of cost overruns, but let's talk about um, some other stuff with Project Artemis, namely... Has the lack of development for Project Artemis caused like universal discouragement in investing in space or how has that kind of been? Yeah, honestly, I feel like it has played a part in investments going down just because it's something that's like been proposed since 2017 and that's roughly like eight years ago. And I don't know, just a lot of people like hearing one date and then when we get to that date, it just gets pushed back and pushed back. There's definitely been a lot of discouragement with space investment. That's true. And I mean, we've talked a lot about kind of like federal uh, sector, like space investment. You talked about like NASA's budgetary concerns. How do the trends kind of look in the private sector? Is it the same or is it different? So in the private sector, the like space related projects uh, secured a total of $12.5 billion in 2023, up from $9.3 billion in 2022. But it's lower than the than the whopping $15.3 billion in 2021. So it's definitely been having like up and down shifts, but it's expected 
to be increasing because people are finding a lot more stability within the private sector. And I feel like part of it also has to come with like distrust from the government and distrust from government programs. So yeah, we can definitely see some crazy trends in the private sector. And where were these investments coming from? So a lot of the investments are coming from external sources, such as like venture capital firms, private equity firms, foundations, and also sovereign wealth funds. So yeah, that's where a lot of the investments in the private sector are coming from. Yeah, that's super cool. There was this like survey titled Define Gravity, and it talked about how professionals say that funding should go to software development, like system level modeling, simulation, as well as like design. And there's a couple of trends that are related with like shortening product development, advanced payload systems, and artificial intelligence that private sector companies are trying to use more in their private sector projects as they're relating to space. So I think that could also kind of maybe play a role in terms of why we're seeing this divergence from how space investment is being federally treated with agencies like NASA versus how like the private sector is looking at developing this. So, I mean, are we going to see any changes in like the commercial space, like travel sector? And if so, I mean, what do you think those changes could look like? I feel like we definitely are seeing some different trends um, within the private sector, including like commercial space travel. We're seeing a lot of increases in commercial space travel, actually, and like a lot of increased investment for it, um, such as like space tourism. I feel like it's becoming a very like not accepted topic, but like it's definitely coming into the media more and it's definitely coming into like investors' minds more because it definitely is going to be a big future um, for the space industry because in the in the past space did not seem attainable to the like average citizen citizen so like now that they're being able to have like the opportunity to be able to go to space as like a normal citizen people are going to definitely try to capitalize off of that. yeah i know like virgin galactic has been kind of on the forefront of trying to look at like space tourism for example and i I personally feel like a lot of that has to do with the fact that governments have like augmented funds that would have been spent on like tech development to like national security and scientific exploration. So now it's kind of given a role where private sector companies are really able to take that on and fulfill those needs because the government isn't really doing that. I mean, what else do you think um, has kind of been going on in that sphere? Uh, yeah, there's been a lot of collaboration between uh, government agencies and private agencies, which is something that we haven't really seen in the past. We've always seen like kind of a seg segregated groups when it came to um, like spaces or space policy and like uh, space exploration because private sec the private sector is something that's so new. We're kind of still learning how to navigate between like the government aspect and the private aspect. A lot of people think that like government collaboration with private with private sector companies will benefit each other in the future. So I think it's definitely mutually beneficial. I think I'm really curious to know, and this kind of brings us to like the next topic, which is like how have trends in climate change or what's been going on in the environment affected our timeline for space development or kind of affected the feeling that people have towards like the need to really develop in space. I definitely think climate change and like climate related issues play a big part in it. I feel like a lot of people don't see like a necessity in space when we are dealing with our own problems here on Earth and they see it as kind of like something that's like redundant. Why why would we invest in space when we can't even handle problems? So I have yeah. a lot of interesting data. Um, according to the EPA, like greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere will continue to increase unless the billions of tons of our annual emissions decrease substantially. And they tell us that some of the effects of the increased concentrations are projected to increase the Earth's average temperature be within the range of 0.5 
to 8.6 degrees Fahrenheit by 2100, with a likely increase of at least 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit for all scenarios except the one representing the most aggressive mitigation of greenhouse gas emissions. So that looks a little scary, I think, if you think about it. Like, if our increase in temperature could be anywhere from 0.5 degrees all the way to almost 10 degrees Fahrenheit uh, within, you know, the next 100 years, that almost seems like we need to really factor in space travel and um, development into space as like an actual solution if we're not able to solve problems here effectively. Yeah, and I definitely think that um, climate change is such like a difficult issue to like understand and a difficult issue for people to like try to fix, especially because there's so many differing opinions about what we should do to fix it. So honestly, I feel like like space travel and space exploration could be like the answer if we can't figure it out. If if like our relations with other people cannot come to like a like a complete and collective understanding about like what we should do about this. Based off the data that you mentioned er earlier, what do you think this is like telling us? Like what do you think what do you think will is expected to happen? Yeah, so the EPA has like some pretty good data on that as well. So they tell us that some of the expected consequences are going to impact the patterns and amounts of precipitation. And so that's going to have a really big impact on agriculture, for example, because it can like reduce the ice and snow cover as well as like the permafrost. It can also raise sea levels, increase the acidity in the oceans and amplify the effects of like natural disasters or like the duration of which natural disasters last. And then on top of that, there's also threats to like human health that come along with the changes and you know it's going to really shift the ecosystem yeah coming from like a personal standpoint i did future farmers of america in high school and like you could obviously tell from last year that something was different from the year before because we saw a lot more hogs getting like sick from the weather and a lot more hogs dying or a lot of more hogs getting uh, pneumonia and different things like that so I, there's definitely some like visual effects that you can like clear visual effects that you could like see with your own and you can realize that it is an issue and that like something has to be done. Yeah, I think it's also interesting as well because uh, this semester I'm taking a class called PPD 361, which is like Sustainable Communities Policy and Planning uh, with Heather Repenning. But um, in that class, we were talking about um, kind of water. We were talking about like issues within water and I had to do like a presentation about the impacts that we've seen in groundwater, which is one of LA's main sources of water. And USC had kind of released a study on this as well back in like 2013. But our groundwater reserves have been like going down so badly and we're not able to recharge those aquifers as fast as we're depleting them. Literally also in part due to the fact that even though we had an exceptionally wet year last year in 2023, our overconsumption of water and the kind of climate changes that we're seeing because of the, the environmental damage that human beings have been doing with the environment is also like affecting like resources that we need to live and then the quality of that and the quantity of that. So, you know, it's, it's been pretty insane. But, you know, in order to kind of like understand climate change, what I think is really important, I think we also need to understand how it works. So, I mean, let's talk about that a bit, right? And also in the class that I just talked about, we read a little bit from this book called Climate Change, The Facts, and or like we got like a summary of it a bit in class. And they kind of talked about the process of climate change and how it works, which I think would be really cool for viewers to know. So they tell us that like with greenhouse gases, like the Earth's atmosphere contains these greenhouse gases uh, like carbon dioxide, methane and water vapor. 
And these gases are natural components of the atmosphere. But human activities like the burning of fossil fuels have like significantly increased their concentrations in the atmosphere. And so what happens is like the sun's rays provide light and heat the earth. And so when this happens, some of the solar energy is absorbed by the earth's surface and some is reflected back towards space. But the problem comes when we talk about like heat retention, because these greenhouse gases trap some of the heat that would otherwise escape into space. And this is a natural and vital process to an extent because it keeps our planet warm enough to support life. But with the increased concentration of these gases from human activities, right, it leads to like more heat being trapped. And so this is what causes like uh, an overall temperature increase in the atmosphere. And that's what we refer to as global warming. And so then this rise of temp this rise in temperature leads to like various changes in like the Earth's, you know, climate systems, like it can alter the weather, weather patterns, melt ice caps, raise sea levels, and kind of the other things that we talked about with like wildlife and vegetation. So it's it's definitely something that is really important to understand when we talk about like environmental impacts. Yeah, and it's definitely clear that it's been posing an issue to society. So, like, based off the trends that we're seeing in global warming and climate change, like, how is this going to affect, like, the timeline of us getting to space? Yeah, so there's also, like, really good data that we have from the UN in their, like, latest annual report. And we can kind of see how, like, the world has been doing in what they have as, like, SDGs, which is their, like, sustainable development goals. And this, I think, can give us, like, good insight into kind of what timeline at least we should have for getting into space. We can kind of talk about some of those goals. I think one that um, you should touch on is maybe like the goal of zero hunger, especially considering your high school project. <laughs> yeah, so um, goal number two for the UN is zero hunger. And according to the United Nations, the world has made a significant pro uh, progress in reducing hunger. However, as of 2024, around 690 million people still go to bed hungry. Um, the prevalence of the undernourishment has decreased from 14.7% in 2010 to 8.9% in uh, 2022. And so what this data is telling us is that um, the progress made reducing hunger as, or the progress made in reducing hunger as indicated uh, by the decline in undernourishment rates um, is a positive development for both Earth and for potential space development. Achieving zero hunger is crucial for fostering a healthy and, and productive global workforce, which could indirectly impact our timelines uh, for space exploration and colonization. And I think by addressing hunger, societies can, like nature, um, individuals who are physically and mentally fit, uh, potentially contributing to technological advancements and space-related topics. I definitely remember just world hunger just was a huge issue like when I was younger like everybody brought it up everybody was talking about it like it was something that we would always hear on the news but like never had a complete understanding of it like we always see, saw it as something that's unattainable but just because like zero hunger is un not like 100% unattainable doesn't mean that we shouldn't work towards it that's very true and it is it is definitely interesting as well to kind of see how something like how issues on Earth, right, that can impact like our development into space, even if it's like seemingly tangential, because obviously we need to have enough people in the workforce and really just kind of like nurture our human capital and, and you know, make sure that we're promoting the well-being of humans as much as we can even here on Earth, especially if we want to go and colonize other planets, because those issues that we're dealing with on Earth, it's not like they're going to be foreign issues when we go and develop elsewhere. There's still going to be elements of the ecosystems that we've created here that will go elsewhere. 
But I think it's also interesting to kind of talk about some of the other goals with the UN. So one of them was, you know, kind of good health and well-being. So according to the UN, there has been progress that's made on improving global health. And so like life expectancy, for example, increased from 65.3 years in 1990 to 73 years in 2022. And infant and child mortality rates have also declined. Um, and again, this is really important because the improvements in this sphere have the potential to contribute to like scientific research and innovation and advancements that are necessary for space exploration because we're able to like conduct a lot more studies and data about what kind of nutrients human beings need and what that kind of looks like across different cultures, across different circumstances. And these advancements in like healthcare and like medical research that come out of focusing on promoting good health and well-being can uh, benefit space travel where like, again, like the health and well-being of even astronauts is really important. So yeah, there's also like some important, you know, stuff like that we can learn from like responsible production and like waste management practices that can be applied to space missions that we've been trying to really like implement to again, promote like health and well-being. So, I mean, there's a lot of like developments that the UN has been making in the sphere with their SGDs that I think could translate really well over to climate, I mean, to space exploration. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think that like, Earth just plays a bigger part in space exploration than we honestly think. Like people have always seen it as two separate entity entities, but in reality, I feel like because we're humans, like our environment around us just plays like such a big role. And if we're not doing the thing, the things that we can do on Earth, it's going to be harder for us to learn how to do them in space and learn how to adapt into an environment when we could have taken what we already knew from home. That's so, like, true. Yeah. No, that's that's absolutely, I think, like a, a really you know salient point. And you know, there's um, one of the other goals that really struck out to me with the UN in their SGDs report was that like goal thirteen, climate action. So they kind of talked about how again, it's like critical to mitigate the impacts of climate change, and um, they have been trying to make improvements in that regard to kind of like lower emissions and work with different countries to like focus on legislation and. Um, provide outlines and guidelines that would be really helpful to the pursuit of that. Um, but I also saw that you did a little bit of research on like goal 14, which is like life below water and life on and goal 15, which is like life on land. So can you talk a little bit with us about that? Yeah. So goal 14 and goal 15 is about preserving uh, life below water and life on land and preserving uh, marine and terrestrial ecosystems are crucial for the biodiversity conservation resources like sustainability and uh, maintaining like an ecological balance. And what this means is like the preservation of life below water and on land is essential not only for like terrestrial ecosystems, but it's also like beneficial for like the sustained the sustainability of earth as like a whole and i think that like potential space development has like also been like impacted by like preserve or preserving uh life on land and life on water and i think this also like honestly ties into goal number two about like zero hunger is like a big part of a lot of people's like food sources are animals and like if we don't have the animals or if we don't have enough animals and like uh like just like marine life in order to like have a stable environment for people to like go without like not being hungry then it's definitely like it just like they all tie in together like each goal plays like a different part of like a whole like pie like for like back lack of better terms like it's literally like a big piece of a pie and each goal just plays like an important part of being a successful race like being a successful like yeah, and to kind of like the point that you made about how everything is really inextricably linked, I think instead of viewing um, the, the the development of 
you know, sustainability on Earth is kind of a separate thing from uh, how it affects our development in space. They, they really should be seen as like two sides of the same coin, right? Everything that we are able to achieve on Earth in terms of fixing these problems is going to translate to outer space because we're most likely going to have to deal with the same issues out there anyway. So there's like a really good Newsweek article actually by Dylan Taylor, who's like the chairman and CEO of Voyager Space Holdings. And he kind of discussed how being a multi-planetary species could allow humans to survive for potentially like trillions of years. And the article also like provided really good insights from Nick Bostrom, who's like the director of Oxford University's Future of Humanity Institute, which I, I love always getting research from them. And he's also like, um, he's like detailed how there's like numerous existential risks that our planet has from like a nuclear holocaust, genetically engineered mistakes, destructive nanobots, and even like the gradual loss of human um, f fertility that this could be like a problem that we need to address with space exploration but then also like there's MIT research that suggests that our planet's oceans could contain enough carbon by 2100 to begin a max a mass extinction event and I feel like that like prediction definitely has like a 100% negative connotation right and we had just talked about how like one of the UN's SGDs you know that you discussed in in depth was uh, life on land and also life underwater and so if we're gonna have enough carbon by 2100 to where we're gonna have like a mass extinction event because our oceans are you know irreversibly damaged I think that would be you know really insane but why don't we talk a little bit about kind of like some insights from the World Economic Forum because I know they did a lot of research about this as well yeah, so the World Economic Forum talks about the scenarios that could lead to humanity's downfall. An Oxford philosopher named uh, Toby Ord states that humans have a one in six chance of going extinct this century, which is a crazy statistic. And he discusses a variety of like long-term risks that are both like ex existential and very difficult to uh, mitigate. So, like, possibilities include uh, nature-based risk, like asteroids, large-scale uh, volcanic eruptions, and stellar explosions. And while we have the technology to, like, track many of these phenomena, we also don't have, like, the tech or, like, the likelihood of, like, developing uh, it soon enough to prevent such large-scale eruptions um, or re redirect, like, large-scale asteroids. So, basically... Like, we have the technology to where we'd be able to know, like, oh, an asteroid's coming that could kill all of us, but we can't do anything about it. Yeah, and I feel like, <laughs> honestly, like, that's scary to, like, realize that, like, to, to realize that we're at risk of, like, dying it can scare a lot of people. Yeah, no, like, talk about hopelessness. Um, you know, it's really interesting because... They, they kind of like follow with more insights, you know, in that article. And they were talking about how as long as humanity is grouped together on one single planet, there will always be a greater than zero chance that we're all going to get killed at once. And they kind of make they they propose like a scenario and, and they say like it's akin to like everyone being in, you know, the same building and that there's always going to be a greater than zero chance of collapse or like a fire that, you know, kills everyone inside. And so essentially you know, our ability to make settlements on other planets is the only way we can mitigate our risk of our entire species being, you know, destroyed, or at least we can significantly kind of curtail that possibility. Elon Musk actually um, talked about this. He's the founder of SpaceX, as you guys uh, know, and he thinks that a Martian colony would need uh, 1 million people to be sustainable. That could scale up uh, such a population within a country. 
Um, and there are definitely like other people out there um, who think that we don't have like a real shot of establishing a human colony um, on another planet. And like considering our lack of like development in Antarctica, like in such like a harsh, harsh condition, like on planet Earth, that like people just like can realize the like risks that it could be or that we could have like trying to navigate other like planets. Yeah, I mean, while I think it is a bit of a pessimistic view, I think they do kind of make a good point, right? Which is like, okay, we still have a continent that we have yet to explore on planet Earth itself. And if we're not even able to colonize Antarctica, like what chance do we even stand of colonizing like another planet? And I, you know, while I do see the the point that those Swiss scientists made, I, I think that, um, you know, it's it's not as, you know, potentially hopeless. <laughs> I don't know if you like if you really think about it, like the temperature on Mars can get as low as negative 237 degrees Fahrenheit. And like if we have issues trying to colonize something where temperatures like could reach like around negative 50 degrees um, or more um, on Antarctica, like it's definitely scary to think about like if we're not even able to colonize a place on Earth that has like harsh or that has less harsh conditions than like um, our potential like places to colonize, I feel like it's definitely like something scary to think about. Like, how are we going to be able to navigate it? How are we going to be able to explore? How are we going to be able to like use all the resources when we can't even do that on Earth? I know we might need Matt Damon to work overtime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. There's also like another really good article from Life uh, Science from 2022, and they said that we as humans could become a multiplanetary species in as little as like 200 years, and that we can, if we can safely transition away from fossil fuels to like nuclear and renewable energy, then, you know, we would have potentially like a real chance. So, you know, what do you really think of that? Yeah, um, honestly, I feel like, like we definitely could become a multi-planet species. Like I definitely agree that we could. Uh, there's definitely a possibility um and i feel like 200 years is definitely like it definitely gives a lot of room because a lot of like technological advancements can happen within two years i mean even looking back at like the computer the computer was event invented in the 20th century and now we walk around with computers in our backpack to go to class when like people had to stay in a stationary place so i definitely think there's like it's like a possibility that reach those expectations within 200 years yeah, I think it, it can be very difficult to kind of extrapolate just how far technological development can go within a given period of time, because it's not necessarily like a linear, like a linear trend we see with technology, like something can be developed. And then within 10 years, that that technology can completely change, right? Like, you know, within, you know, 50 years, going from the computers that we started with to then ending up with uh, the computers, you know, that we have, you know, now or maybe a little bit more than 50 years, but, you know, still just looking at how exponential that growth is within 200 years, it may be that that could be enough time to where we'd be able to develop everything that we need to in order to travel into space. Yeah, and I feel like there's also, like, you can take into account, like, other technological advancements that people had, like, previously thought would be more advanced than they are at the moment. Like, even talking about, like, um, cars and how people thought, like, by our time we would have time flying cars right now like um it's like crazy because there's like these expectations but like in reality there's no way of understanding there's no way of knowing the expectations could act like whether or not the expectations can act so like in terms of uh, a timeline i think our best indicator we have is 
probably um, NASA's 50 objectives for becoming a multi-planetary species through which we might have an indicator of like how long this accomplishment might take. Some of the important objectives, including development uh, in a transportation system um, that a crew can like routinely operate on uh, from Earth, like moon vicinity to Mars orbit and like, like the Martian surface um, play a big part. And I think like the development of systems um, for the crew to live and operate and explore on a Martian surface um, to address critical questions concerning science, like also plays like an immense part. And the develop like integrated human and like robotic uh, systems within interrelationships that like enable maximum science return for like Mars's surface surface and orbit are like definitely like key points. Like recognize that like it it would basically if we don't have a system where we can like kind of like fix any problems that we like potentially have on Mars. Also NASA talks about like um, creating like an advanced autonomous construction and like precision landing for like uh, the Martian surface, like manufacturing the capabilities to support a future human uh, lunar presence and economy are definitely like few factors of it. I mean, I feel like a big part of like, like colonizing a different planet would be or would be like it's you can kind of think of it as like a pit stop like the moon is kind of like a pit stop to like the final destination mars and like if you don't have that pit stop then it'd be def it'd definitely be harder to be able to like transport things from like um earth to mars like in our uh we'll talk about this later but like in order to get from like earth to mars there's only like the window is only available every two years so i feel like having like a launching place off of like the lunar surface would definitely be like a better like it definitely would be like an advancement that like is kind of necessary. Like I don't know, we we need like a shorter than like a two year window. Um, so yeah, NASA also talks about like um, demonstrating the ability to use like commodities produced from planetary surfaces in space resources would reduce like the the mass required to be like transported from Earth. So yeah. Yeah, basically what Bailey is trying to say is that we're going to be like the space Mongols. We're going to need to find a way to genuinely utilize every resource that we have to make transportation from Earth to Mars as efficient as possible, you know, like by utilizing the moon and also developing our own resources that we can use and, you know, developing the technology that will be sufficient enough to get us there within a reasonable amount of time and with with limited as, as limited resources as we can have it be so it's really interesting as well because elon musk who we have talked about a bit and you know he'll be like a reoccurring person definitely i mean you can't really talk about space without talking about elon musk but sponsor us <laughs> maybe um but he's trying to make mars more affordable um, as a way to incentivize people to populate the planet, if you kind of remember a bit earlier in this episode, we talked about how you need around like 1 million people for a colony there to be sustainable. And so in 2017, he estimated the cost of a Mars trip using traditional technology to cost around $10 billion a person, like $10 billion per person. I don't know how many people here would be able to afford that. Maybe only like the 10 richest people on the planet would. Uh, but then on top of that, he was saying that if we were able to get the cost down to around like 450K, which is around the median price of a home, then it would make space travel like more sustainable um, as an investment for people. And he also kind of talked about how 
Lowering the cost would include per like using reusable rockets, ability to fuel kind of mid-orbit, similar to how planes refuel in mid-air. And I'd also like to hypothesize producing maybe like a propellant on Mars and then choosing the most inefficient, like effective propellant to get us there. In the one of the interesting things is that SpaceX and other like commercial enterprises are developing technologies to meet these kind of goals. So it's not really just something that they've been purely speculating, but they're also taking a lot of actionable steps to kind of make this happen. So in February of 2023, he said that SpaceX's Starship is closing the gap on becoming a fully reusable transportation system that could carry one million tons of cargo to Earth um, orbit annually, assuming that there are three launches every day. And then they also talk about there are other researchers who are modeling the development of an on-site uh, propellants, which they would call local Martian materials, and high propulsion systems to create fuel-efficient and cost-effective transportation. So in terms of like how people could like potentially live on other planets, um, if we were to become a multi-planetary uh, species, species Lynn Rothschild who is like the senior uh, research assistant at NASA's uh, Ames Research Center and an expert in astro astrobiology believes that human on humans on Mars will generate ele enough electricity um, through bacteria and grow houses of fungi um, which is like pretty interesting it's like kind of like the same um, system that we kind of use here on earth like we reap the benefits that we have on earth so like how are we going to be able to live if we can't the benefits on like different and she um touches on that like it's called um living technology um is what she like um, have deemed the term um which like utilizes like the power of the cell which is pretty interesting and like she talks about how microscopic organisms uh will produce like silk wool latex silica and other materials which have like been vital for um, humans for centuries yeah especially i mean as like a senior research scientist like to be working on all this kind of cool stuff um yeah lynn rothschild is, is is working on really interesting things with living technology i know that mit had kind of started to develop what they call living robots they're known as like xenobots and they're super cool because they're able to use cells from living organisms to create uh, robots that literally function and act independently on their own and so living technology is is a very new concept but it's also something that would really make it sustainable for us to live on other planets because we wouldn't really be able to utilize like materials on earth in how we've been traditionally using it so yeah that, that's super cool she also mentioned how like digital information could be sent to back to bio factories um on mars using dna sequencing which is really cool. And they could generate and store power using living organisms. Um, and kind of on that, I, I know that they did a little bit of research at Berkeley, if I'm not mistaken, about storing data in plants, which is insane. So like storing data in DNA, storing data in plants, um, and all the different ways we can really compress down information and really utilize what we have here on Earth for outer space development, I think is really cool. Yeah. It, um, the cells actually kind of remind me, reminded me of something. Um, for those who have seen Big Hero Six, like the uh, the nanotechnology that like everybody is so obsessed with, like I feel like that's like a good example of trying to like understand what the like it's not something that like, you can control. It's kind of something that you can just foster and kind of farm. So it's like it's definitely it's definitely an interesting topic. Um, and Rothschild also like gave us like an example of like how one of her students incorporated silver atoms into plant DNA to make to make an electrical wire. So despite like the pessimism of those, like the Swiss scientists that we talked about earlier, maybe it's not 
not so many, like maybe there's not so many holes in our plans to become like a multidisciplinary team. That's true. And I mean, we've been talking a lot about, you know, lowering costs with, you know, how SpaceX and Elon Musk have been trying to do it. Um, Living technology with Lynn Rothschild's been like working and developing on and, you know, our chances of dying and extinction, like one in six is insane. Again, like, what does this mean in terms of our actual timeline? Yeah, so um, there's something uh, called the the Kardashev scale. There you go. Um, in 1964, the Soviet astronomer uh, Nikolai Kardashev um, proposed a measurement scheme, later modified by Carl Sagan, to estimate the technological capability of an intellectual species. It all comes down to like the energy and how much of it a species like can utilize for all the. That's really interesting. Yeah, and like a bit about the Kardashev scale. I know that there's like different types of civilization. So he talks about how like a type one civilization, for example, can use all the energy available on the species like home planet, including all the like all the sources of energy in the ground um, and like in the atmosphere, like nuclear fission, for example, all the energy falling onto the planet um, from the parent star. So for Earth, this is like somewhere around 10 to, to the power of like 16 watts. And like a type two civilization consumes 10 times the amount of energy and are able to exploit the entire energy output of a single star. And a type three species can go even further and use most of the energy in an entire galaxy. So like type one, just as we covered, is using all the energy on the home planet. Type two is utilizing like this energy of like a local star. I know like one proposed idea of this was like the Dyson sphere. And then type three is looking at utilizing all the energy within a galaxy, which for us would be the Milky Way. Yeah. And so like regardless, humans are well below the type one threshold, um, but our energy consumption increases uh, with every year passing. Uh, More people are using more power per capita. Uh, Still, that power comes with like a lot of cost, namely uh, the threat to our biosphere from the release of carbon and pollutants and like the risks posed by the ability to use like the powerful means of like the energy storage and delivery delivery systems for like destructive purposes, like such as like nuclear bombs, like a big big idea. That's really that's really interesting to think about. Um, There's also the idea of what's called like the great filter. And there's like a really cool video made by a YouTube channel called Kurz Gazette, which talks really um, in depth about this. But the danger posed by like the increased energy consumption by people might explain why scientists, for example, haven't found any evidence for advanced alien civilizations yet. Because like if Earth, for example, um, used all the energy or like if it isn't special as a planet and like life in the galaxy should have a lot more like intelligent life running around, right? Like, so they talk about how, okay, well, if if this is kind of the threshold that we need to be meeting for these civilizations to exist, then how come there's like no intelligent life around if Earth isn't really that special? Humans like have, are, have also like not been around for like a super long time in terms of the Milky Way, but like, like surely like by now somewhere like should have like reached the type three stage that we were talking about late or recently and like um started exploring the galaxy like even if it's just for like a field trip like something <laughs> as basic as a field trip like it's crazy to think that like we're out here on earth like struggling so hard to like 
be able to just explore the galaxy or like even explore within our solar system but like there's definitely a possibility that like in some place far in like the galaxy they could be harnessing like all powers that they can yeah and i think that's an interesting point because even though like humans haven't been around for that long of a time like the milky way astronomically speaking like it's a boomer right so where are the aliens that's the big question exactly like there's <laughs> there's no reason why there shouldn't be other like species or like other like species on a so kind of following off of this, like the trick with the great filter is to basically avoid our old, our own like demise and self-destruction while we scale up our energy to the point that we can reliably and sustainably exist on multiple planets at the same time. But it needs a lot of energy. Yeah. A study published uh, in Live Science had researchers like explore the best ways to uh, reach a type one status um, as soon as like possible. And like the researchers uh, following the recommendations of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change found that, like, if we displace fossil fuels with, like, nuclear and, like, renewable energy sources, uh, we have the potential and capability to, like, keep on growing in an output without putting further, like, strain on the biosphere, which is, like, really interesting to think. And, like, if we continue at our current rate of consumption, that we could reach a type 1 status by the year uh, 2371. So, like, not terrible but like also that's pretty far 300 years is <laughs> yeah that's is, only like 347 years away yeah um but also these calculations i you know i should add include a lot of like assumptions um about the uncertainty on the estimate is like around 100 years or so so you know it, it could honestly be like 500 years away but honestly for the timeline of humanity as a whole that's not really that bad yeah and like you could also think about it like it says like and it's like a hundred years off. So like if you really think about it, it also means that it could be happening a hundred years or projected. Like it, there is a possibility that it could happen within like the next two hundred years, which is really like interesting to think about. Like that's only like what like four or five generations after us. Like our great 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 grandchildren. Like sorry, I thought that was six. <laughs> sorry, but like, but yeah, like. Still, like, even if it is six, that's still, like, irrelevantly close time to, like, us in our current time. Yeah. And there's also, like, a really good article uh, by the World Economic Forum that, like, talks about, like, why we need to get into space. Like, why it's a necessity to be a multi-planetary species. Um, so, they highlight, like, at the top of the article um, about, like, three key takeaways. Um, and I'll dive more into the data. Becoming a multi-planetary species could protect the future of the human race and help humanity, like, reach its full potential. Human habitation across multiple planets will, like, create new hubs of innovation and experimentation leading to, like, advancements in space and technology and commerce, significantly increasing, like, the government and private sector spending on, like, crewed space flight is, like, an investment um, in national and international security against, like, long-tail risk. And also, like, talking on one of the points that it made is that, like, it's interesting to think that, like, colonization of Mars doesn't mean that, like, humanity 100% has to Like, I feel like, um, like, having a colony on Mars could, like, honestly be, like, an answer to, like, like, lowering a lot of, like, pollution, lowering, like, world hunger, because there's not as many people on Earth that, like, need to be provided for. Like, it's definitely, like, you could also think of it as, like, a way to, like, control the population because we when we talk about like the world population obviously we're only talking about earth but like 
if we have a way of like diverging the world population and like separating into like two separate places, I feel like that could like bring a lot of benefits to people. And maybe even like benefits to like the other society. Other planets. Yeah, for some reason this kind of reminds me of this like anime that I was watching called Hunter X Hunter. And they haven't gotten to what was it? The the other world arc. Do you know what it's called? Yes. Oh my god. Um <laughs> I don't know why I'm blanking on it so hard, but like the whole concept is that basically like there's like the inner world and the outer world. The dark continent. The dark continent. The dark continent. Yes, the dark continent. <laughs> and like basically it's like crazy to think that like they only in the show they only understand like the small portion of Earth that they like they haven't even explored the entirety like there, which is like just a crazy thing to think. There's so much out there and like you can also think of it in like terms of like us that are or in our galaxy. Yeah, like diverging the populations to where you're trying to set up a colony there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was really interesting to think about. And also just as like a side note, like, you know, because we go to USC and, and every um, you know, holiday, a bunch of people kind of travel around the country and around the world. I can't imagine in a couple of centuries people being like, I'm going to summer break on Mars. And like, no, literally. Literally, it's literally my cousins like a, live on Mars. Yeah, that would like, but like, honestly, like, that's a reality that could happen. Like, being like, oh, yeah, like, my cousin, my cousin lives on Mars. This is what they did today. Like, it's a crazy concept of like thinking about is that like you, you, like, the people that are close in your life, like, if we were in a different time where like uh, exploration or like, I don't know, I'm blanking on the word. Like, um, if we had, the, like, the capabilities to, like, go to Mars, like, on any other day, like, it's just crazy to think that, like, it, you could potentially be saying, like, oh, yeah, like, I'm going to go visit my grandma on Mars. Like, that spaceship log go crazy. Yeah, literally, <laughs> literally. Um, but, yeah, so kind of continuing off of, you know, that whole thing, in 2021, you had like companies again, like Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, and SpaceX sending flights to like the borders of our atmosphere. And, and so, like, the response from the public either developed like the sense of like amazement in terms of like how much we as humans were able to kind of develop and at the rate we were able to develop. But then you also had people coming from a place of anger because, in some ways, it also symbolized the amount of inequality we have back on Earth, right? Like, that being said, there are benefits of like space exploration and becoming a multiplanetary species that have largely gone unanswered in such discussions because, you know, people have either just kind of been, again, in awe of what's been happening or they're looking at the activities of these billionaires and thinking like, okay, like they're just using space as a playground for them at this point. Um, but, you know, and we will kind of touch on this more in later in the podcast, but still from this article, there's like a lot of supporters of space exploration and they suggest that by sending like, you know, robotic probes, for example, to like the remote corners of the solar system and beyond that it can teach us what we need to know about the universe at less cost and less risk than like sending people. And so that has been like a main criticism, right? Which is like, okay, we can explore space and we can do all these things that people are talking about, but why do we need to send people? Yeah. Yeah, it's just, like, it's crazy. It's really crazy to think about, like, to even, like, fathom that, like, we have to, like, it's, like, a necessity that we have this conversation at this point in time. Like, it's, like, somebody posed the idea that, like, outer space could be the future. So, like, it's kind of, like, a for, like, society. And I feel like that's why we're, like, so obsessed with, like, wanting to be able to, like, harness it. Like, the entire, like, the entire solar system 
entire galaxy. Just the entire galaxy. I know. Every time we research this podcast, even as we're like talking about it every single time, we just kind of sit back and we're like, wow, this is insane that we're having these conversations. But, yeah. you know, kind of taking things from back in outer space and coming back down to Earth. What are some of the trends that we've been seeing in kind of conflict with like displaced people? And how is conflict really affecting space development, right? Yeah, so um, we can talk about like the Russian-Ukraine um, conflict. Russia plays like a big role in like space development and like space exploration. And like, uh, like because of the Russia-Ukraine like conflict, like planetary space missions have been like immensely affected. Um, and it's like, rippling through europe and like rippling through the entire world about like what what is happening at like a certain place yeah. or a certain place on earth can like have like effect for like our possibilities of getting to space yeah it's a massive wrench in our timeline yeah. but on top of that like you know i know back in the 1990s the u.s and russia kind of began like collaborating following the disbandment of the soviet union and you know they kind of began space development as rivals with the space race and trying to fight to get satellites and people out into space before one another but then on top of that like their biggest collaboration was you know undoubtedly the International Space Station. Um, but like now with the Russia and Ukraine war, they're kind of leveraging space exploration and development as a way to kind of stop the other country from doing what you know they think is wrong. So like, for example, like typically you'll see a lot of like tariffs or economic sanctions being used against a country when they're acting quote out of line. And, you know, I seeing how that's kind of extended to space, you know, what do, what do you kind of, you know, think about that and what more information do you have? Yeah, so I'm going to bring up a quote by James R. Miller um, that he said in the 1990s, um, which was, in a post-Cold War world, space policy is foreign policy. And I feel like that's, like, it's, like, crazy to think about how, like, even through, like, so many conflicts we've had in the past that we're still able to, like, come together as, like, a human race and, like, set aside our difference be able to, like, try to work towards like this collective goal like, wow i'm just yeah. like, that like quote like sh sent like shivers down my spine he was just like space policy is foreign policy yeah like it's like but honestly like it's 100 percent factual and it's like it's hard to like kind of come to that understanding so i'm glad that he was able to like put it in words but like it's 100 percent the truth any anything like pertaining to space has to do with other countries or other like policies that other countries have implemented or like that we've even implemented implemented as like a collaborative group no i mean and it's a it's a really good point to make as well because human spaceflight, you know kind of really became the vehicle in which diplomacy could be conducted and to some extent the the westernification of russia as well and their development within the space programs showing like assimilation between russia the first world countries you know even even though Russia is is deemed as was kind of like deemed as like a less superior country at that time, but it's it's insane that a lot of this diplomacy and international collaboration was really fostered by space development, and that it was kind of the way that we did that. Yeah, and it's like it's definitely like interesting to think about how like Russia's interest in space has like helped them like develop into like a new country. It's like it's definitely brought like new opportunities to Russia, which I feel like are, like, definitely a big thing to talk about because, like, you know, by playing, like, a big role in, like, um, the development of, like, space exploration that, like, they've been able to, like, kind of translate that into playing, like, a big role in, like, 
um, like international relations, like even things that aren't pertaining to necessarily. Uh, almost like immediately um, after like conflicts rose, immediately as in two days after the invasion of Ukraine, um, Dmitry Rogozin, um, which is like the head of the Roskomos, the Russian space agency, announced that the Roskomos were uh, cutting ties with NASA on the Venera D space mission, which is planned mission to Venus scheduled for 2029. And NASA was playing like an advisory role in the mission. But like since the mission was like set for 2029, uh, Russia has been like focusing on other types of development. So like it's clear that their conflict with one country to like conflict of its in like other countries. I didn't even know we were going to explore Venus. What? Yeah. This is like news to me. Um, I knew that we were going to go for the moon and the Mars, but yeah. Venus just came out of left field. I'm guessing that it's not a manned mission. It's probably just like like a deeper dive on like what we already know about Venus. But I feel like uh, it's definitely like interesting because I think it was, I don't know if it was Venus or Mercury, but I remember uh, like researching and uh, scientists had said that they found bacteria on, uh, I think it was Venus, honestly. They said that they had found bacteria on Venus, which is like really interesting. It's like, we've like always thought that like, there's no other like type of life form, but like, and like seeing that, uh, bacteria can like survive on like a planet whose climates are as harsh as Venus is to one of the hottest and or the hottest solar system. It's a pretty it's, gassy like, planet. Yeah, like it's it's insane to like be able to like understand there's definitely like other life out there. Yeah, in regards to kind of what I know a little bit more about like the Russia Ukraine conflict, I also know that the EU stopped collaboration with them on their mission to kind of find life on Mars. And so the launch was going to use like Russian rockets in order to get the rover to Mars. And this delay is also significant because in order to launch a spacecraft to Mars, the planets must be close enough, which again, like only happens every two years as Bailey talked about. And so we can see that a lot of these endeavors that we want into space to like other planets is not just a and actions that are being pursued by one sovereign state. These are the collaborations between multiple different countries. And so these delays that are happening because of conflict is, is pretty insane. Yeah. And like also the, the actions of one country can just like cause like a rippling effect. As I said recently, like the actions of Russia have been kind of just like screw over the whole system, like the entire system of space. Like one, one person's like decision can affect the entire project, which is, like, crazy. We definitely need to come together as, like, a collaborative, like, group in order to, like, reach these endeavors that we've been talking about. Yeah, that's insane. So, I mean, going on top of that, I guess the main question that this all kind of comes down to is, well, why should we invest in the space policy? So today, Bailey and I are going to spill our five main reasons for why we should invest. All right, let's start off with global communication and connectivity. You know, as we talked about with these trends in conflict and with the environment and knowing about our timeline and also like our chances of extinction, uh, one of the biggest reasons that we should invest into space policy is to help with our global communication and connectivity so that we're able to have more even data on these kinds of issues, right? So by deploying a constellation of satellites in strategic locations, global coverage can be achieved. You can also use like a transmitter receiver and communication be achieved through with space as the medium. And these transmitters can encode messages onto electromagnetic waves. And these waves flow through space towards the receiver, 
where the receiver collects the waves and demodulates them, decoding the sender's message. And this is super beneficial kind of as a communication system because it allows humans to communicate with one another for like a variety of distances. And this can assess, um, assist in the efforts of alliances, treaties, as well as allowing everyday activities to become easier for Earth's population. Yeah, and I feel like that also like ties into like the national security and defense point. National security is just like such a vital role. People can't feel secure in their development space if they don't feel secure like where they currently. And I feel like um, that's like definitely important to talk about. All space can be used as like a, a means of like national security, um, which is like what a lot of people like fail to realize is that like in order to protect our country or like protect for every country, or every single country, it's like, space could be used to like, as like, another commodity to like, uh, achieve like a means of like, security. Information like collected from space um, informs like national decision makers about like, evolving threats in the US and like, allied uh, partner interests. So it's like, oh, I just think that's so cool. Like, it just seems like so futuristic, but like it's something that like we're actively using today. And like also uh, space would like enable the U.S. military to like protect U.S. homelands and like advances um, for like national and like collective security interests with the U.S. and its allies. Also, like um, it allows like the U.S. to respond to like humanitarian uh, crises more quickly and more efficiently. Like how we talked about with like our extinction events is like we have the technology to like know when it's going to happen but i feel like space can like kind of be like a development of like so now that we can understand how this happened how this is happening and why it's happening maybe like come closer to like a better like way to a better way to access and so like some examples of of this are like the um defense support system satellites it's a a 22,300 mile uh gyrosynchronous or geosynchronous orbit um, of satellites which like protect the U.S. and its allies from um, detecting like missile launches to like space launches to like other uh, nuclear detonations um, and also it like um, integrates Earth's observation data satellite communications and like global positioning technology which are like enable like precise and timely information gathering um, aiding in like addressing humanitarian humanitarian crisis. So, like, yeah, it's just, like, definitely interesting to think about. I mean, like, we even talk about, like, um, a lot of our, like, like, even with, like, North Korea, like, we don't really know a lot about it, or about a lot about North Korea because they're such, like, a sheltered place, but using satellites, like, we've been able to find out so much more about, like, what's actually going on in a place that's so, like, sheltered from the rest of society. It's crazy to think about. But, yeah, so we talked a lot about, like, you know, protection and, and d defense with um, investing in space. But I also kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about, like, technological innovation and development, which is, I think, another reason we should invest in space. A, a, a common theme you'll kind of see through a lot of these reasons is that even if our endeavors into space don't necessarily lead to, like, immediate successes in terms of travel, there's a lot of benefits that we have with back home on Earth in terms of how this technology and um, can be used and why it's important to invest. So kind of moving on to that, there's a lot of like direct technological advances in space exploration, right? So like the immediate technological advancements into this include like the development of powerful rockets, advanced materials suited for the harsh conditions of space, sophisticated robotics, and innovative power systems. And these technologies contribute directly to our ability to explore and understand space more effectively. Going off of that, like NASA's like spinoff technologies, um, NASA's like 
in particular has like had a long history of developing new technologies for space missions that have like found like widespread use in other sectors, which I think is like really important to touch on. Like um, medical technology, for example, like innovations, like the digital image processing techniques used in CAT scans and MRI technology and like infrared uh, ear like thermometers. I feel like that's like, like it's, it's just so interesting how like something that was like initially intended for space has been able to like be used as like an everyday thing that we've been able to use to like save lives. They've created so many things too. Like they talk about like memory foam. Um, and they originally developed that for like aircraft seats and scratch resistant lenses, but then it literally translated into so many other areas. Like, you know, like what about environmental and agricultural applications? Yeah. Like satellite ba- satellite based, like environmental monitoring systems. Um, and like NASA also developed, um, like sensors, uh, for like precision farming, which is like, done wonder, like talking about our zero hunger. Like, I feel like, um, that's like definitely contributed to like, us zero hunger and even like safety and transportation like with nasa they made a lot of improvements in like automotive safety with like better braking systems more efficient engines and like anti-icing systems for aircraft like that translates really well and even like computing and telecommunications yeah like honestly i feel like commuting and telecommunication like um kind of goes in hand in hand with nasa like and like with space exploration it's like it's crazy to like think that like the demands for like space missions have driven like significant advancements um and the, like the miniaturization and like efficiency of like computing systems like how we were talking about like earlier in the um podcast yeah yeah i think it's definitely insane and they just like they have you know a couple more they talk about like material science and engineering like they made like lightweight and durable materials they created the gps Um, which is not like a direct product of space exploration, but when they developed a lot of satellite technology, they had to make GPS possible so that you could like navigate the logistics and everything. And then they also have definitely served as like a catalyst for STEM education and innovation because they've, um, you know, pioneered all of these like new fields that have had to be kind of explored within, you know, space. And so the challenges and achievements of these missions have definitely inspired generations of scientists and engineers yeah and also like i'm like looking back on um the movie hidden figures like i remember one of the scenes basically they were talking about how like they had to invent a new math in order to like achieve their mission and i just think it's crazy that like in order to like reach an endeavor like that like what they were trying to do like there was also so much for like life on earth it's like it's just crazy to think about it really is like can translate into something that's not space related at all imagine what you're doing being so complicated that you have to create new math that is like my nightmare manifested (laughs) also like i don't know just like also thinking about how like the invention of calculus like happened like as like i think it happened in the 1600s which is like crazy to think that like some of these top universities that we know like didn't even offer calculus classes for like and they had like, to create calculus in order to explain physics. Yeah, like, they had to like, create math to explain science. It's just so crazy to, like, just, like, realize that, like, I don't know, uh, just trying to understand stuff has, like, led us to inventing new stuff. That makes it, like, easier for people to understand and, like, makes it as, like, I don't know, they just can make it as simple as a couple of numbers. It's crazy. Like, yeah. it really is. Um, all right. The next topic that we're going to talk about, about, like, why we should invest in space. Um, is climate change. I mean, like, we've touched on it um, 
like earlier in the podcast, but like um, monitoring like the Earth's climate system, definitely like um, there's satellites um, that are like critical tools for like monitoring uh, monitoring uh, Earth's climate, which um, like provide a comprehensive global uh, data about like various uh, aspects of like the climate system, including like like the temperature weather patterns, atmospheric gases, ice and sea level changes, and, like even like de deforestation land uses and like touching in on those like a little bit like um talking about like the temperature and weather weather patterns like satellites are able to track and uh, track global and regional uh temperature trends and like monitor weather patterns and observe like oceanic temperatures it's crazy that's insane yeah you know and a lot of how we're able to understand more about climate change comes down to like the satellite technology that has been you know produced as a result of our space exploration endeavors and so that's been really critical but also you know another reason we need to invest into space as well for space like we need to study other planets especially because like mars and venus have provided insights into planetary climate systems and venus especially because it has like runaway greenhouse effect it serves as like a stark warning of the potential consequences of uncontrolled uh, gas emissions. And Mars, on the other hand, can offer like the view of a planet that may have had a uh, climate capable of supporting life in you know, the distant past. There's also like, again, like more technological innovation. And there's like, you know, our preparation that we need for a multi-planetary existence because we have to figure out how to live sustainably in a closed loop um, life support system. And that's like directly applicable to sustainable living on Earth. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff, you know, with that. Yeah, and like we also can talk about like enhanced global collaboration and like how space missions have like um, often like required international co collaboration, um, like how we were talking about earlier. Like we can't do this alone. Yeah, you know, and and that kind of brings us to the last reason of exploring space. Something that I, and it, you know, it's it's last but definitely not least on this list. But um, extinction. As Bailey kind of talked about earlier, if there's like a one in what six chance that we're literally going to go extinct by the end of the century, I think we should definitely uh, talk about that, right? And so, yeah, the future of Humanity Institute at Oxford in 2016 estimated a 19% chance of human extinction before 2100. And NASA warns that there's a 0.1% chance of an asteroid big enough to level a city hitting Earth each year. <laughs> and so this is kind of crazy. Yeah, and it's, like, it's definitely vital to invest in space because, like, our probabilities of getting, like, annihilated, we think, like, of, like, issues like science fiction or, like, a far away, like, when reality, when, like, or when in reality these events are, like, closer than we realize. Like, literally even today, like, as we're filming right now, like, there could be an extinction event that, like, could just happen. We'd all be gone. Like, just the possibilities are so crazy. It's I wouldn't like, even be able to get a Starbucks. No, literally. <laughs> like, oh my god! Like it's just so crazy to think about. Like it literally could, literally, right? Like as within a snap of a finger. Like that's literally so Avengers Infinity War quoted, but it's real. It's real. Like I don't know. It's just so crazy to think. Yeah. So they like one of the biggest um, ways in which you know, they talk about how we have like a danger of, you know, kind of creating these, these extinction level events could be with like nuclear accidents. And they're called like broken arrow incidents that have often like highlighted mistakes in handling nuclear weapons that could have led to explosions. And we avoided them by sheer luck. 
Um, part of this also has to do with like our upkeep of nuclear facilities, but it's quite frightening. Like the U.S. alone had 32, 32 different nuclear weapon incidents um, in which we straight up lost like six nuclear weapons and we still haven't found them. And the Soviets have lost an upward of hundreds of nuclear weapons. And so there was like a couple of examples that I wanted to talk about, but, you know, definitely to demonstrate how just, again, critical this is. So like during the Cuban Missile Crisis on, in 1962, um, there were like intruding, intruder alarms that went off at the Dulles Section Center in Minnesota. And this was on October 25th. And a sentry fired shots at the intruder um, and it raised alarms all over the area. And they thought the Soviets were making a move against Air Force, ass Air Force assets. And in a frenzy, Volk Field Air National Guard Base in Wisconsin sounded the wrong alarm and pilots literally had to scramble to get their aircraft ready to take nuclear weapons to World War III. Um, but thankfully, the guard was able to realize that the intruder was a bear, and they were able to de-escalate the situation. Yeah, I also want to, like, touch on that. Like, we were talking about, like, how there's been so many, like, technological improvements. And, like, I saw on, I think it was TikTok recently, that, like, the way that the U.S. was able to figure out that, like, um, Cuba had been working with the Soviets is that instead of seeing baseball fields being built in Cuba, they saw an increase of soccer fields being built, which, like, baseball is more prevalent in um, Cuba than soccer is. So, like, they were able to tell that, like, they're obviously created creating these soccer fields for, like, somebody else. Like, they're literally, it's not, it's not for the Cubans. So, like, who are they creating them for? And that's how we were able to, like, figure out that it was, like, Soviet collaboration but it's, Damn. it's like crazy that's some hot chai yeah. but yeah they, they talk about like more you know incidents that fall in line with this like the polymaris incident in 1966 um the thule airbase incident in 1968 the goldsboro incident in 1961 where literally a b-52 broke in mid-air over north carolina and they dropped two nuclear bombs and none of them thankfully detonated um, but one of the bombs underwent a partial arming sequence, and it was later revealed that a single safety switch was all that basically prevented a full-scale nuclear detonation. Um, which... Thanks the Lord for that safety <laughs> switch. Thanks the Lord, swear. And then there was the Tybee Island incident in 1958, where like a B-47 bomber collided with a fighter plane, and in order to like, and during a training exercise, and jetsoned a nuclear bomb near the island in Georgia. And to avoid a large explosion upon landing, the bomb was, you know, not armed, thankfully, and it didn't detonate, but it was never recovered and is still somewhere in the Wausau Sound. So again, like, there are so many incidents where we've either lost nuclear weapons, where they straight up fell out of a plane and didn't somehow detonate, or where we've thought that, you know, other actors or, or countries were kind of trying to come for our safety and we were so close to literally detonating, like, nuclear weapons when it was like a bear a bear yeah and like even like we've seen in the past like how dangerous these weapons can actually be i mean like the bombing in japan during world war ii killed millions of people like it's crazy that that could have happened on accident with no intention of it actually happening and like it's just crazy it's crazy to think that like something that's so devastating that like has happened to other countries has been like literally right at our front door exactly and so you know these incidents just kind of go to show that like extinction or at least an incident that could you know leave 
collateral damage to our planet and to the people here. It's not as far off or foreign as we seem. You know, the data from Oxford tells us that, the, the recollection of these incidents tell us that. And we can't sit here and think that exploring into space is not an option or that it's redundant or that it's unnecessary when, you know, in reality, really the only thing that could stand between us being here today and waking up tomorrow is a freaking safety switch. Literally one safety switch. But yeah, um, it's just it's just crazy. It really is. Like it kind of has me speechless, honestly. That like I don't know, just like something that's so simple as like a um, malfunction could literally just lead to like higher worlds. I know. But with that being said, you know, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to episode two of Space Chai. We covered a lot of different topics today. We talked about kind of, you know, environmental trends, trends in conflict, our timeline for developing in space, what that development could kind of look like in space, more reasons as to why we need to invest in space, and just talking about some really crazy stories, you know, between then and now that have all really contributed to why at least you know there is a segment of the population that believes that this is really important yeah i feel like i've definitely like just like sitting here and having being able to have this conversation has helped me like understand like how big the stress like how it's like the stress is real like we need to do something to figure this out and like it's really yeah yeah well you know so this episode has been absolutely incredible if you guys really enjoyed this episode please make sure to like share and subscribe send it to somebody else that you think might be a space policy enthusiast or just really has an interest in space and teasing our next episode we might be talking about a certain space program that happened in a continent far far away and they really thought they were going to take on the u.s and soviets so stay tuned for that And And that's that's the tea. tea.